Well, um, probably not many of us think about the Industrial Revolution very often. It began only a few, how many of you think about the Industrial Revolution every day, every other day? Every, right, we don't think about it very often. Began only a few generations ago, right? And we don't think about how radically it has changed civilization in just a little more than a century. Let me just give you one example. When James Bonsack invented the first cigarette rolling machine in 1880, just two of those machines could produce 240,000 cigarettes in 10 hours, which was more than Americans smoked in a single day. Two machines could produce more than every American who smoked could smoke in that day. So what do you do when you can make way more cigarettes than Americans smoke? You try to create a whole country of change smokers. You market it. You push it. Now, substitute a cigarette roller and its marketing apparatus with the internet news cycle. Substitute cigarettes with the endless supply of outrage producing news and social media links. Substitute a raging tobacco habit with our habitual state of offense angst and worry, and you can understand how we got where we are today, and why we feel stuck here. Mass media, um, which has benefits, maybe marginal benefits, and those notwithstanding, it feeds this monster in our day and age of our offense at a rate far too high for our souls to bear. I don't know if you agree with that, but I really, in pastoring in this day and age, this is what I am seeing and hearing and feeling. It's a rate that's too high for us and too, too high for any possibility of contributing to a healthy, well-informed society. This machine churns out nonstop answers to the question, what should upset me or involve me in conflict today? whether in my head or in a relationship. We find ourselves believing we kind of need this sense of offense and outrage while a kind of cancer is at work in us. And I don't need to get me wrong. We, we certainly, we are meant to identify, to lament, to confront injustice and falsehood and the like, and to be offended by these realities. But we aren't made to live as armchair activists with our teeth constantly on edge, feeling embattled, feeling royal, seeing either an enemy or an ally at every turn, with no peace of our own and very little to give to anyone else, if any. And maybe worse, maybe worse, we are desensitized to a type of offense that is frequent and essential as we follow Jesus. The one we need to feel, the one we need to sit with, which is the kind of disturbance and offense that washed over Jesus' disciples in John 6. And maybe you're wondering, is that offense right for them to have felt? Well, I think it's purposeful. And I want to suggest that it's purposeful for us to be confronted in the way that they were confronted. This confrontation with who Jesus really is is a type of holy crisis, which comes from, crisis comes from a Greek word, crisis, except it starts with a K, and it means a sifting. Jesus offended minds to reveal hearts, 
And as the crowd of his devoted followers thinned dramatically, he brought the moment in our reading today to a head with this question. Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? And I believe that this ongoing confrontation with Jesus and what we really need from him is necessary for us to grow in the trust, to grow in the humility, to grow in the repentance and the hope in which we are called to live and by which we make sense of the world as it really is. A world that is very offensive in many ways and a world that is groaning and in need of freedom from its bondage to corruption in St. Paul's words. When confronted with it all, we may find ourselves renewing our response to this same question. Do you want to go away as well? Before we explore this last bit of John 6 further, it might be worth acknowledging that some of us might simply be offended at a different scripture today in Ephesians 5. Now, when these same texts came around in the lectionary three years ago, I preached on that text, on mutual submission, on husbands and wives. I preached on that, reminding us, actually, that whatever our late modern sensibilities tell us, and however this passage honestly has been poorly interpreted and applied in our churches, Paul's call to mutual submission and for the paterfamilias of the Greek household, the Greco-Roman household, to love their wives in a self-emptying way, this was radically challenging to husbands and the patriarchy of that day. So if you want the audio on that, just go back to the archive on our website. Or if you want the manuscript, I still have it. Just email me. But let's get back to John 6 and the offense that we find here. And I have three points today. Baptists, you're welcome. I don't usually preach. <laughs> three points, but it just happens. Sometimes it happens. So here's the first one. There are legitimate reasons for them and for us to be disturbed by Jesus' words. Purposefully. As our readings over the last few weeks reveal, right, uh, the last few weeks reveal, the Pharisees, in particular, they clearly struggled with Jesus' insistence that he had come down from heaven. <coughs> he had come down from heaven, which he articulates actually beginning in verse 35 of chapter 6. Jesus was leaving no doubt that he, what he was doing in their midst was exactly what God was doing, Israel's God was doing now. He was comparing himself to Moses, and he was going further. He was calling himself the manna, the bread from heaven that gives eternal life, not just full bellies, but eternal life to all who will feed on him. And then he expounds on that, right? He's saying that they must believe in him. And in making his point, he kept using this turn of phrase, which to us we might skip right through it, but it's a turn of phrase that was otherwise reserved for Israel's God. Ego, I me. I am. He keeps saying this over and over. I am. I am. And those are careful words. And for the Pharisees, those are fighting words. But Jesus also keeps making it a point to sound like people are literally supposed to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And how can that be anything other than strange, at best, or deeply offensive and gross at worst? 
The language he chooses here is as earthy as you can make it. The word we translate feeding on is the active present participle of trogo. That means to munch, to crunch, to gnaw. And really what it's trying to invoke is the sound of someone really, really hungry eating. Even an animal. Someone starving so hungry that they are noisily eating. Trogo. Jesus is amplifying his point with vivid language. But he's not taking the same, this is important, the same metaphorical approach that he has with his parables. In which he said the kingdom of heaven is like. Notice he doesn't say, believing in me is like eating my flesh and drinking my blood. To stay alive. To live forever. He's saying something more challenging and mysterious. So when in verse 60 his disciples say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? What is it that really offended them? So gathering together what their, where their offense may have come from, gathering together the offense of the Pharisees or any, anybody in Jesus' day who's listening, this is what's going on here. This is how the, the reason they may have been offended or the reasons they may have been offended. First, Jesus just had too high a view of, his, of himself as the I am. How do we reconcile that? Second, he had too high a view of his origin in heaven. He also had too high a view of his significance on earth as, make no mistake, God's exclusive, not exclusionary, but exclusive way of salvation. He was also too insistent on his bloody death, although it may not have been obvious at this point that he was speaking actually of his death, but we know that he was. He emphasized what felt like especially to the Jews, an easy access to divine blessing. Wait a minute, just believe in you? Believe in you? And as I've mentioned, and we'll talk a little bit more about, he insisted on this materialistic, this fleshly, this physical delivery of his saving work. He insisted on the physical, just the doctrinal, not just ideas. Not just the spiritual, but on a physical manifestation of faith in him. Hands down, this is not how his audience would have thought the Messiah would understand and present himself. How is this going to translate to their national hopes? What does any of this have to do with the overthrow of Rome and the vindication of ethnic Israel? And why this language of eating is flesh and blood? In short, the disciples who defected from Jesus in, the, in our reading today were offended by Jesus' offensively high claim for himself from heaven and his offensively base claim for himself. My flesh and my blood. And they were offended by everything that he seemed to be leaving out. Particularly all of their definitions and all of their expectations. And so I want to suggest that this is exactly the kind of thing that rightly offends us and to which we must respond. What don't you like about Jesus? What 
parts that, uh, of what he teaches and what he says about himself and what he calls us to is doesn't fit with what we desire or what we think we need. And what role are we willing to allow this offense to play in our lives? Do we want to go away as well? When Jesus responds to his disciples grumbling in verse 61, he's suggesting that uh, if they stick around, they'll see him bodily ascend to heaven. He adds the point right there in our reading today about the flesh being no help at all. He's not contradicting his points about his own flesh. What's he doing? He's now talking about theirs. He's pointing out the limits of their flesh in discerning the truth about his, about him. When Jesus presents the idea of us taking on his flesh, living on his flesh, literally embodying, acting out our receptivity of his flesh, he is challenging our tendency to live according to what? Our own flesh. In other words, if we're going to truly live, it will be because of flesh that is perfectly united with the spirit and given to them. The word with God and from God who became flesh and blood and spoke by the Spirit to then give us the Spirit. Create dependence. To acknowledge contingence. To be a gift. And to call us to receptivity. It is only by His Spirit that all flesh, our flesh, participates in the life-giving work of God in the world. And it's only because Jesus gives His Spirit united flesh to the world. And it has to go beyond the idea. The challenge to us at this intersection of spirit and flesh is that we don't get to relegate our faith to one realm, so to speak. And we tend to just move it toward the spiritual, which we very often reduce to the intellectual. We must believe exclusively in Him with a spiritual anchor in heaven. And we must imagine our presence in the world, the physical, the relational, the social, the political, and all, our, all the systemic realities that we affect and that affect us, that they find all potential. Every, every bit of our physical presence, our life, what we do in our flesh, it finds all its potential in the Spirit's work to bring life to otherwise dead bodies and broken systems. Contingent, dependent, Upon the flesh of Christ in our fleshly lives. In other words, we don't get to reduce Christianity to doctrine or religious practice. We don't get to reduce it to whatever brand of moralism that we find responsible and necessary, nor do we get to reduce faith to a feel-good spirituality that accessorizes our ambitions. Our bodies, fed by the spiritual food of new and unending life in Him, our bodies have become an intersection of heaven and earth. Of belief and action. Of flesh and spirit. And to the degree we are living otherwise, we must face this disturbance from Jesus and go through it into a better understanding, into a deeper devotion and affection, and into a more tangible trust in Jesus. Bottom line is, I feel that Jesus felt and understood that apart from us touching and tasting and ordering our bodies and lives to this moment together, we're not going to fully get it. 
we're not fully going to embrace him. So here's the second and shorter point, and the third one will be even much shorter. We can't overstate the importance of John 6 to our whole culture of belief and practice as Christians. For two millennia, the majority of biblical interpreters have understood that this message is about Jesus' two givings of himself. The gift of his body on the cross for our sin and the gift of his body and blood to us in the real and repeatable meal of communion he himself instituted for our sakes. Where we take our real hands and our, our, our real sense of agency and we submit it to him. And we say, I will feed on you. I will feed this body on you. Not just my understanding and intellect. I will feed this body on you. Point being, the Eucharist meal Jesus anticipated in John 6 and that he inaugurated later was our bodily connection to what he would do on the cross. Received through personal and communal repentance. It's us coming together. Individually, together, with renewed faith. And so then the Eucharist continually makes the power of the cross in which we trust this active, this tangible, this unifying, this integrating means of life and hope in the physical, in the temporal madness that we live in. Madness of life and all its polarizing and disintegrating effects. We experience in the body and blood of Jesus the integrating of heaven and earth. The integrating of our faith and our action, of our identity, the sense of it, and our souls that will live forever. The challenge to us at this intersection of spirit and flesh is that we don't get to relegate our faith to this one realm. So, Jesus' words here are about what he would do for us on the cross. The spiritual reality on which we depend. And these words are about what he will keep doing for us uniquely when we eat and drink this meal. He will mysteriously unite heaven and earth and unite himself to us when we touch and taste by faith. And we don't get to manhandle it. We get to receive it. We don't get to understand it based on our limited flesh, our limited understanding and experience. We get to receive it in faith. It is an important action. It is an essential action. It is in so many ways meant to offend our hearts, our minds, to reveal our hearts, and then to call us to renewed faith. And you can imagine it's easy to fall off of this balance between kind of the, the spiritual reality of what's going on and the sacramental reality of actually touching and tasting. For many evangelicals, the finished work of Christ on the cross is this historical and spiritual anchor, right, for saving faith. It's this doctrinal reality that's, that's taught to inform the way we think, and the way we speak, and the way we act. So the meal, if celebrated at all, sometimes it's just arguably an idea. Unnecessary except as another way of teaching something. Teaching what's spiritually true. It isn't instrumental in any sense. Providing any tangible experience of Christ's presence. And that's a tragedy. Conversely, for some in the apostolic traditions in which we are in, the sacramental, that touching and tasting, the mystery around that is the primary focus. Communion is this, it can become a ceremonial and even cultural rite that ends up not having a whole lot to do with vital personal faith 
and knowledge of what the meal means for us and for the world. It just becomes religious. And we don't care to know what it means, even though we can't fully grasp it. Or what's happening, even though we can't fully grasp it. As in any practice that becomes purely religious, the Eucharist can end up being more about our participation in the ceremonies than in the faith that undergirds them. And the faith that animates, fuels like food, our faithful presence in the world. In other words, this sacramental emphasis doesn't always translate to much more than going to church to do churchy things. That's also tragic. And this dichotomy that often results between word and sacrament is, historically speaking, a false one. Jesus, friends, is the life-giving word we preach and believe, and Jesus is the life-giving word we eat and drink and live on, just as he called us to do. So third and lastly, the offense, the disturbance, the sifting, if we will embrace it, is actually the help we need. It's the help we need. Why? Because Jesus, and you might not pick up on it, he's actually saying, this is how I will give you a home in the world, which does not feel like much of a home, does it? Jesus promised in our reading that whoever depends on him alone, who feeds on him, abides in him. That's a way of saying, you get to stay here with me. We get this unshakable home on a rock not in a sandy floodplain, come hell or high water. In this tumultuous world, we, we need this. Though we readily try to find the security of a home, we try to abide elsewhere, we try to find it you know, in, in, in an identity, an ideology, or elsewhere. But if we don't all, in some sense, feel homeless in the world apart from Jesus, then we may have missed or forgotten what Jesus is really saying and to what, to what he's really inviting us. What he's really revealed about himself. We need this challenge to measure and renew our confidence in Jesus. The, and that confidence is actually what allows us to confront what's wrong and offensive about our world. While not being, and this is so important, while not being woefully anxious and combative. If you know you have a home in Jesus, how might the world feel different? We're not going to be woefully anxious and combative, swept away into fights and fitful sleep. It is this home in Him and only in Him that allows us to love our enemies. Who, yes, they actually are our enemies in a real sense. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have called them that. But they aren't the final word. And they aren't the final enemy. Jesus, utterly crushed, utterly canceled by his enemies, allowed us to trust him with the outcome. Entrusting ourselves to his father and the same spirit who raised him from the dead. Let me close by sharing with everyone what one of you shared with me this week in response to my email about our groaning world. And maybe you'll resonate with this. The email said, the creation itself will be set free is a good reminder for me. I've been wrestling to understand how God cares for systems and ecosystems. If he cares for me and my family and his church, then he must care for the planet we depend on. It is his. And the government that organizes our community life. But at a systems level, it all looks very hopeless. 
Even though I can't accept that as a final reality because I know God can and does work miracles, it's hard to feel otherwise. It feels like instead of the Assyrians invading in a violent attack, we're being led slowly into a long, dark, psychological and environmental exile. Like we're being invaded by ourselves. Hard to know how to respond. Can I find hope if I extend my horizon of faith 100 or 200 or 1,000 years? It's just tempting just to hunker down to seek contentment for now in a hard place and try to stay part of the remnant. Other days it feels like we just need more striving or more prophecy, more righteous anger, more sacrifice. I'm grateful for the haven and hope and village. Village is not the haven and hope. Although we are a witness to the haven and hope. To the home. To Jesus. Just where he, what he promised us in 6.56 of our reading. Every week by faith we eat his flesh and drink his blood to say we want above all things to live with you, to abide in you, to feed on you, to trust you fully. Yes, to our tongues and our teeth, they are bread we chew and wine we taste. But because he makes them so, they are also the food of promise and power that we are so desperately hungry for. But it's the power to make our homes in him and he in us as we face the very same world that shames and hangs and pierces and buries the perfect love of God. A world that divides and disintegrates in pursuit of its own nearsighted ends. And as Jesus, with a heart of forgiveness, said from the cross, they don't know what they're doing. And the only way to know, friends, is to believe and to eat. These are ways of knowing, ways of receiving. So then, as he holds himself out to us again in this radical call to depend on him and to join others in the same, how will we, how will you respond to the question, do you want to go away too? Or will we be able to hear him calling us again, saying, come. Come to me, all who are weary. And weigh it down. And I'll give you rest. Abide in me. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Do you believe it? Lord, to whom will we go? You have and always will have the words of life. Help us in this wilderness to feed on you. Body and soul, mind and spirit, help us to face the world in hope. Help us to embrace the challenge of the cross of your body and your blood every day. You have the words of life. Help us to live on them. In your spirit-united flesh is our revivified and restored and ultimately our resurrected flesh. We pray in all these things Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.